0: Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation. It is Aloha Friday, November 3rd. I'm Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us. Hawaii Talks. The Hawaii Herald announces it will shut down next month, the end of a 43-year long run for the Japanese community newspaper. We take a closer look at the settlement announced this week between the Hawaii Department of Education and the American Civil Liberties Union over equal opportunities for female athletes. We'll hear from the Campbell High School alum, who was the lead plaintiff in the case. And we celebrate Arbor Day in Hawaii. We've got a story about a mechanic who became a conservationist. He shares how he turned a personal tragedy into a passion for restoring a valley in East Oahu. Mm This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For 43 years, the Hawaii Herald newspaper has served the local Japanese community, connecting generations with the rich history in the islands. The company just announced it will publish its final issue next month. We talked to the editor, Christian uh, Nimoto J. She reflected on the paper's history and about how hard it was to break the news to the loyal subscribers of the Japanese American Journal.
1: Going back to our founder Fred Kinzaburo Makino, I think when he started Hochi anyway, he wanted to help share news and information uh, to um, Hawaii's largest immigrant population that were working on the plantation farms, and their rights were not, you know, being adhered to. They were being, you know, like so many immigrants at that time working on the plantation, they were being used and abused for labor and. So he started the newspaper as a way to help share and give more light to the world, the new world that they were living in at that time. And so, you know, over the years when the Hawaii Herald came about through the Hawaii Hochi uh, in 1980, it was a way for us to look at our history um, as, you know, being products of our ancestors before us and how far we've come and how much we can help to contribute within the community. And um, I think, yeah, our, our last issue, I to be honest, it's nothing quite special other than it's going to be our last and we're going to have a tribute piece. Our, our cover is going to be all of us on, on the cover saying aloha to all of our subscribers and and, and new readers as well, thanking them for for letting us be a part of their lives for 43 years. This has just been such an honor and privilege to be able to do that. So, yeah.
0: So the Hawaii Herald has been a voice and also a way to unite the community and hold on to that history of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And you are asking for testimonials as part of this. Yes.
1: Yeah, um, that would be great um, to hear from people, subscribers or new readers, and just, I guess, hoping to hear how we've helped or helped to share people's stories within the community. That would be great. It's a long shot and kind of a pipe dream, but we're hoping to find a buyer that could take over the paper. It's not looking too good, obviously, but who knows? And someone who can help us to continue this legacy, moving the conversations forward as it's ever evolving within our community, and especially helping to shed light more within our marginalized communities. We did our first ever Pride issue last year and did our second one this year and our very first um, Black History Month issue in uh, February in conjunction with Japanese-American history and culture. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't know that many of those stories are intertwined. And when we put those issues out there and shared it with public, it was really eye-opening. And furthermore, helping people to connect and understand each other. You know, sometimes I I feel like our Japanese American community can be somewhat in a bubble, especially within the Hawaii Herald. So what I was hoping to do anyway with the paper is branch out to find stories that are not only about Japanese American history and culture, but also are just human human stories that people can relate to and look back on and, and learn from and be inspired by and um, yeah, So that's what we're hoping to do anyway, and uh, testimonials will be great to help continue that on.
0: Well, you know, I recall doing an interview about a story that you folks ran about Mm -hmm. the memory of Yukio Okutsu, uh, who Mm -hmm. the Veterans Home in Hilo was named for. And, you know, that Mm -hmm. obviously rose to the headlines because of the COVID cases there. And and it was Mm -hmm. just a wonderful story acknowledging, you know, why that Veterans Home was named for him. You know, he was a Congressional Mm -hmm. uh, Medal of of Honor um, uh, awardee. And, you know, it, it just... Peeled back another layer in our community, and got you connected to that part of history, you know, yeah. there in Halo. And and I just recall and and the, the pictures, you know, that mm-hmm. that you featured. It just really enriched my experience mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. that bit of history.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Yeah, I. And if anything, especially my generation, yeah. So I'm a fourth generation Yonsei. My Grandfather, he was a Nisei veteran. He was part of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And I didn't know too much about my own history and culture really until much later in my life, in in my late 20s actually. And I feel like the loss of this paper is further taking away what I think our generation could learn from. generations thereafter. Prior to the Hawaii Herald, um, I did know a little bit more, but I I had my eyes open so much to my own history and culture and people within the community that have shapeshifted so many things, laws and, you know, ways for people to continue conversations, the hard conversations, and... Moving things forward, so you know that we continue to be, you know, the state, the Aloha state in which we coexist amongst each other, where, you know, we celebrate our differences rather than melding all together. We acknowledge that and we, we celebrate it. And so, yeah, um, you hit it on the head, the nail on the head, that you know the loss of this paper and the histories that could, you know, come with it and continue to tell to. The next generation thereafter, it's 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 sad. It's very sad.
0: I think many will lament the loss uh, if the paper does close down uh, and and go goes dark next month. But do you have any stories that you want to share that maybe you recall in your time there? You know, reading over the years that that stood out. Wow, well, that's a great question. Um, there's probably a lot, but yeah, I mean, any one particular story that you would want to highlight
1: that has been a part of the Hawaii Herald history? You know, to be selfish, <laughs> I can't help but think of my my own grandfather. So I went to Brouillard, France in 2013 with my family for the anniversary of the liberation of that tiny commune that that town that the 442nd soldiers helped to liberate from Nazi persecution and I didn't know anything about that I think it was like 29 28 and when my my family told me about it and they said oh you know your grandpa he helped to create the sister city relationship between Brugière and Honolulu, when I mean, they're having this anniversary. You know, they have it every year, but you know, we're, we've gathered you know a whole bunch of people to go. You know, do you want to go? And I was like, Oh, to Europe, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I, I went, you know, selfishly for you know the response and the endless amounts of wine, which they did provide because they know how to host up there, especially for descendants of, of the veterans. Mm-hmm. But um, when I went up there and learned about the huge impact that the soldiers had within the town, talking to, you know, people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who remembered the war and hiding in basements. And, and it opened my eyes to so much about my own grandfather's uh, past, one that he never, ever talked about. And so when I got home, I was interviewed uh, by the Hawaii Herald, myself and my cousins, um, after we took the trip back home. And um, they asked us how it was, and, and I shared what it was like You know, to be in the Vosges Mountains that so many soldiers had passed away from. And it was eye-opening. And so there's an article about my my grandfather being a part of that very momentous part of history and and then learning from that. And then, of course, you know, there's other stories thereafter that have shaped it, you know, that shaped um, how I perceive my own self, um, Dr. Franklin Odo, he recently passed uh, last December. He was one of the, I believe, the founders of the Ethnic Studies program within UH, uh yes. Manoa. And, you know, he helped to. Create such an amazing program, and so many people learn from him. And and people that I've, I've interviewed for the Hoy Herald, Bill Koneko, even our former editor, Carleen Chinon, and just learning so much about my own history. There's a saying, you know, "Okage sama Dei, and that means I am what I am because of you, and and I am truly who I am because of because of the Hoi Herald, and I I um just so sad and uh, but grateful at the same time to have been a part of such an amazing newspaper and, um, well
0: we salute the yeah. Hoy Herald and the deep connections that it has reinforced over the years in so many families and mm-hmm. so many people just throughout our state and abroad so yes we will lament the loss and we will you know, hope for a Hail Mary pass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, certainly it's a history that is something to be proud of. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, sharing the story.
1: Oh, thank you. Pleasure's all mine.
0: And uh, that was Kristen nemoto J, editor of the Hawaii Herald, which announced it will publish its final edition next month because of dwindling revenues. You're tuned to the conversation here on, on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
2: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Molokai, O Lana, O O Hawaii.
0: Across the state tomorrow, many groups will mark Arbor Day Hawaii with tree and plant giveaways. On the Valley Isle, it'll mark the return of the Ohia Love Festival at Maui Nui Botanical Gardens, which will feature a giveaway of a thousand Hawaiian trees. So for today's backyard quiz, we honor our state tree, the native Ohia lehua. Its flowers uh, come in a array of rainbow colors from red to orange and yellow and occasionally white it can thrive on rugged lava rock landscapes and makes up some 80 percent of our native forests it is a favorite of native endangered and extinct birds like the apapane and mamo honeycreepers its bark was used for kappa, its leaves have medicinal uses, but recently it's come under attack by fungus that's attacking this endemic tree, which has triggered a ban on transporting flowers and plants in her island to prevent its spread. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of this disease. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HBR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Thank you.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com. This week on Science Friday, how the idea of nuclear winter 40 years ago led to a shift in weapons policy, plus how five elements have shaped our planet's past and will shape its future.
4: When organisms evolve a new way of getting these elements, they have the capacity to change the world.
3: The elemental details on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options.
0: It has taken nearly five years But finally, there's been a tentative settlement in a Title IX lawsuit in Hawaii's public schools. The ACLU sued Campbell High School and the Oahu Interscholastic Association for failing to provide equal treatment for girls' sports programs. We talked to ACLU's legal director, Wookie Kim, and Campbell alum, Ashley Badis, who was the lead plaintiff in the case uh, about this settlement this morning. Uh, Badis was on the girls' water polo team and recalled being forced to change in the restrooms of a nearby fast food restaurant because of the lack of a girls locker room and one year the team didn't get to practice in a pool prior to their first game the tentative agreement in the class action suit still needs court approval but the deal signals major changes ahead we start with kim
2: this is a significant milestone because you know this is a recognition that gender equity in our schools when it comes to athletics is, is something that's important and something that the Department of Education and the Oahu Interscholastic Association are, are taking seriously. And so we are pleased about that, and especially that there will be an independent third-party evaluator who is going to you know basically closely assess The uh, nature of the athletics program at Campbell High School. And uh, the settlement also includes other terms that, you know, we are hoping will have broader impact beyond Campbell High School itself, including the development of a Title IX training video that hopefully will be used elsewhere. And so these are all great things. And, you know, we're hoping that the school district uses what it does at Campbell as a model for other schools statewide.
0: And Ashley, jump in here, you know, because you were a student there at Campbell. And so explain to our listeners what the problem was.
5: The problem was just overall gender inequity for female athletes. There were common themes that they all struggled with, such as lack of equal opportunities, lack of equipment, facilities, and just overall support from the administration.
0: Talk about what it was like, what your experience was like as a member of the girls' water polo team.
5: I would say my team itself made it a positive experience um, because they were like another family to me. We were all really close. But seeing what they had gone through and what I'd gone through, it was just really frustrating and disheartening. It made me feel like my team and all the hard work we were putting in didn't matter.
0: You didn't have any facilities to change in. Uh, You didn't have access to pools.
5: And most of the time, our practice facility, the pool was booked late. So my junior year, we started without having played in a pool at all, and we were practicing on a public beach.
0: And how far would you have to go to get access to the water? The beach was
5: close because it was right across the street from the school, but to get to the practice pool took maybe about, like, 30 to 45 minutes depending on traffic sometimes a little bit longer
0: and to your knowledge were you the only team that hadn't practiced in a pool when you started uh, those games
5: yeah I think to my knowledge I think all the other teams had pools booked on time
0: and so Wookie, when you first got wind of this problem you know what did you think
2: well I think we were quite frankly we were shocked because You know, Title IX was passed over 50 years ago now at this point. And to learn that such major inequity still existed today was really really shocking and disappointing. And so how we learned about this uh, started from a Civil Beat article that revealed that there were about a dozen or so high schools in DOE, of the about 55 high schools statewide, where there were athletic locker facilities for boys, but not for girls. And so Campbell was one of, the, one of the, I guess, red flag schools that was noted in that investigation. And so then we started connecting with family members and students, and Ashley and her family stepped forward and we decided that we wanted to do something about it.
0: And it's taken a while, and I I don't know, you know, what the landscape is. If this was one of several across the country, you know, I don't know. I mean, what did you find in your research?
2: Well, I mean, I think across the country, the unfortunate reality is that there is a lot of non-compliance with Title IX in K through twelve schools. It's definitely a, an overlooked issue, or it's an issue that isn't isn't being addressed across the country, and 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 that is. Um, disappointing because you know obviously schools and your, your K through twelve education is so formative. and if you are already being treated as a second class citizen from that point, you know it has a, it has a huge impact on on your future and, and sense of sense of self and, and everything. And you know I'm a man, right? But I recognize that the system, right favors, favors boys and and men. And all the research has shown just how how significant of an impact playing sports in middle school or high school has, not just on your happiness, but in terms of potential earnings, in terms of developing leadership skills. And so this is not just a, a frivolous thing that we're talking about. Athletics is a core part of of education and of learning and of life, and unfortunately, across the country, there's still a lot of schools and school districts that aren't complying with Title IX when it comes to athletics.
0: And you folks sought help from a mainland firm that has been involved in a number of these lawsuits.
2: Yes. So we have been working with an organization called Legal Aid at Work, which is based in California. They have a project that that almost exclusively focuses on Title IX athletic advocacy. And so they have brought similar lawsuits in other school districts uh, and then we're also working with the law firm Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett and they have a, a team there that also focuses on Title IX athletics advocacy because you know their leader uh, Jama Meyer has a lot of experience in this and you know also benefited greatly from Title IX and all, all of our co-counsel are, are, are athletes as well. And and I think that's part of why we were so motivated and are so motivated to to work on a case like this because we've all experienced firsthand how much of an impact sports can have. And I don't know, Ashley, if you want to share sort of the impact that playing sports has had on your life.
5: For me, sports was always a really important aspect of my life. I grew up playing sports and different kinds of sports ever since I was little. And I would say it's definitely taught me a lot of important life lessons, like teamwork and how to build connections and work towards a goal. My team has always become like my second family. It's taught me like how to build these friendships and personal connections. So it's something that I, I really value. And to be honest, I really miss playing sports to, to this day.
0: So, Ashley, you know, how do you think this whole experience has changed you, you know, filing that lawsuit with the ACLU, you know, when you were at Campbell, and then now that you're, you know, in college, and, you know, there's a settlement now.
5: Well, I think it's made me a lot more confident in myself, knowing that myself, along with the other plaintiffs on this case, were able to make real change, and it's something that goes beyond just us, and will benefit future girls, and even the current girls right now. And I also feel a sense of pride in that. My younger sister is also um, one of the plaintiffs.
0: Your parents, though, must be proud knowing that you've decided to uh, stand up and say this is wrong, and, you know, be a part of something that maybe changes things for future athletes.
5: They've definitely expressed how proud they are of us, and they've been like our number one support for all of this and really helpful with this whole process.
0: And, Wookiee, well, can you talk about how this will? Look, You know, I know you're still talking with the Department of Education uh, about, you know, the details of a plan. But but anything you can share with us at, at this point?
2: Well, the parties entered and signed and executed the settlement agreement. It's just a matter of now the court approving the settlement. And, you know, because there are certain procedures that need to be followed when it comes to a class action lawsuit. But, but in short, as far as the next steps, I mean, the parties have already agreed to a particular independent evaluator, and there will be a seven-year compliance and monitoring period during which sort of, you know, there are all these steps that need to be taken as far as doing a site visit, interviewing the students, interviewing the coaches, training the students, training the coaches, et cetera. So that's all contemplated, but just on the mechanics, we're still waiting for the court to finally approve these terms. That will happen sometime in early 2024.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So not like next week or anything like that. And is no, that just because, because it's a essentially
2: class? We are, we are going to be, well, the DOE is going to be issuing what, what, are, what is called a class notice. It's basically trying to take reasonable steps to inform any current and future female students at Campbell that might be interested in athletics just about this lawsuit and their rights and whatnot.
0: So with this lawsuit being a class action, is there a higher standard when it comes to resolving a case like this?
2: Yes, there is, because essentially a, a class action is one that is seeking to represent a whole group of people. And typically the court needs to determine that the settlement is fair. And I'm using, and that's actually sort of the legal term of art, that there's a fairness hearing. And it's about whether it's fair to all the parties involved, and, and especially the absent class members, meaning class members did, that did not enter as actual named plaintiffs in the case. And so there's always the opportunity to object, it's called, right? And if they don't agree with the terms of the settlement or, you know, think it was, it didn't go far enough or, or whatever, right? Um, they have that opportunity to present their position to the, the judge. And this is a normal part of most, not all, class actions.
0: Are there any damages in a case like this? No, there are no damages that are being sought, and
2: that's one of the reasons why the notice process won't I don't think will will pose any issues because you know that's often what what the fights are about. Well, you know there's a there's a one million dollar award or there's a one million dollar pot, but why am I only getting ten cents? Sometimes class members will object on that basis. But no, this lawsuit sought no monetary award, no monetary damages, and so you know it's purely about systemic change, and and we are pleased that we were able to. achieve
0: that. That was ACLU Legal Director Wookie Kim and former Campbell High School student Ashley Badis talking about the tentative settlement over their lawsuit against the Department of Education for fair access to sports facilities and opportunities in our public schools. Kim says to its credit, Campbell, the largest high school in our state, has now Uh, uh, alternated schedules in its main locker room for both male and female athletes. It has also improved playing fields and has a renovation and construction schedule to provide separate facilities in the future. The DOE and the Attorney General's Office declined comment at this time.
3: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School.
6: HPR Generation Listen invites you to Trivia Night
0: every first Monday of the month at Village Bottle Shop and Tasting Room in Kaka'ako. It's an opportunity to connect with fellow public radio nerds in an evening of lively but friendly competition. Gen Listen connects younger listeners and young at heart listeners with the station and with each other. Connect with us in person at HPR Gen Listen Trivia. Sign up to play at Hawaii Public
6: slash Gen Listen.
0: Honor Lucilla Beat looks at what role the Public Utilities Commission has in investigating the Maui wildfires. Uh, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurtin joins us for our reality check today. Hi, Stuart.
7: Hi, Catherine.
0: Yeah, so you and I have both covered uh, the PUC for some time, and they don't really move very quick.
7: They do not move very quickly at all. And in this case, they're moving a lot more slowly than usual. Uh, in the past, they have conducted investigations when there have been uh, widespread power outages and events in this case, they are not doing anything.
0: And so some people might be scratching their heads like, why not? I mean, there are so many other probes, right, um, independent probes that are happening into the cause of this fire. And, and we did have uh, 99 people, you know, identified as, as have died in this uh, fire.
7: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, um, by way of background, the PUC has the authority to investigate when there have been uh, problems with the utilities. Um, That is one part of the governing statute that empowers the PUC to exist and operate. Part of that, though, also says that the PUC must investigate when there is a death involving the utility. And that's one of the key things happening now. As you said, there've been 99 deaths. They are not investigating. The law requires the PUC to investigate. It's just not doing it. (coughs) Excuse me, why? Well, as you said, there are other investigations going on. The Attorney General's looking into certain aspects of the wildfire, mainly government responses, state and local government response. The uh, Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms um, and Explosives, is also looking at it, trying to figure out, well, what started the fire. But again, the PUC is supposed to do something broader, or it has the authority to do something broader, and it's just not doing it. And again, the PUC's investigations happen more in a public way. There's public testimony, there are the dockets that you know about, Catherine. All of this happens publicly in a way that we can see things unfold we don't see what's going on with the attorney general and the atf these are these investigations are occurring in black boxes we have no idea what they're doing what they're going to say they'll come out with some kind of findings but again all of this is pretty uh secretive frankly Um, and then the pc says oh we're going to rely on all of that to then guide our investigation it really makes no sense it's not independent and again this is the a th- role of the Public Utilities Commission to regulate the utility and this is part of regulating the utility.
0: So some might ask, well why not take a more aggressive role? And you did reach out to the PUC and the spokesman said, well in due time.
7: Yeah, in due time they'll do it. Um, again, the really crazy part about the, this is, as, as you know, Hawaiian Electric actually is trying to do things. They're trying to move faster. They're kind of Pulling the regulators kicking and screaming into the future. As you know, Catherine, today Hawaiian Electric announced a plan to do more um, to mitigate and try wildfires and try to do more for wildfire safety. Again, this isn't something that the PUC required, the utility just came up with it. Also, there is a proposal for a $190 million investment in. Um, the infrastructure for the utility that would help, um, among other things, mitigate against wildfire. That's sitting there before the PUC, and Hawaiian Electric has asked, can you expedite this? Ulupono Initiative has asked, can you expedite this? And the PUC just is delaying.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. I mean, you know, if... uh Hawaiian Electric just said, hey, we need to do this. And this was, what, in 2022, right, they asked?
7: Right, in 2022. And it was moving along. And, again, since then, they've gotten uh, secured about $90 million in federal funding to help uh, pay for all of this. So a lot of money's there. The desire is there. And, again, the regulators are just being very passive.
0: Yeah, and, you know, to see that... uh, uh, release come out from Hawaiian Electric about you know what they're trying to do to you know given the the fact that we've we're, we're battling a fire here on Oahu uh, that's scorched more than you know 1,100 acres so yeah top of mind uh, for a lot of people right now
7: very much top of mind
0: so we'll see what the PUC does but thank you very much Stuart
7: thank you Catherine
0: uh, that was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check uh, read the full story at civilbeat.org. Time now for the answer to today's backyard quiz. We were focused on the state endemic tree, the ohia lehua, in a nod to all the Arbor Day Hawaii events taking place across the island, or across the state, I should say, this weekend. The ohia is rooted deep in Hawaiian culture and mythology and is prized for its showy flower, often used by hula halau in Poo or hakule. The red, yellow, or orange blossoms are more commonly seen, but occasionally you might find a white variety of the flower. In recent years, dancers participating in the Mary Monarch Hula Festival in Hilo have been warned not to transport the flowers to other islands to prevent the spread of rapid ohia death, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. The disease has killed more than a million trees on the island of Hawaii and has been found on uh, some of other island, uh, the other islands. In honor of Arbor Day, we encourage you to attend one of the many plant giveaways happening across the state this week. Check your local listings. And congrats to our winner, Rick from Heia, first time winner, and you have very fast fingers. You got it right today. If you have an idea for a quiz, let us know. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at Hawaii <speaking in Spanish>
3: Support for H.P.R. comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, with music of Tchaikovsky, Sibelius, and Skullthorpe, featuring violinist Simone Porter and didgeridoo artist William Barton, November 5th at Hawaii Theater, myhso.org. What makes The Real Housewives a cultural institution? We descended into the depths of the Bravo Convention to find out.
4: This is my (laughs) Comic-Con.
3: We hear from a Bravo producer. If you want to be the villain, I'm ready to rock out and the housewives themselves. I am talent, but I'm God's talent. To understand why the real housewives is peak culture. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative.
0: You might think you need to be the outdoorsy type or an enlightened philanthropist to start an impactful conservation effort. But sometimes all you need is to be at the right place at the right time. Today we mark Arbor Day Hawaii by bringing you the story of a mechanic turned conservationist, a Tyrone Monteri. In 2018, Monteri unexpectedly found himself the owner of 330 acres of preservation land on Oahu, the conversations Russell Subiano spent a Saturday morning with Monteri on, and a group of volunteers amidst the foliage in Pia Valley in East Honolulu.
4: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning.
0: That's
8: Tyrone Monteri greeting a group of volunteers ready to pull invasive species and plant trees. He's the founder and president of the nonprofit Protect and Preserve Hawaii. Its mission to protect Hawaii's native ecosystem by restoring Pia Valley in East Oahu. Monterey grew up in Makakilo, above the sounds of revving engines and cheering crowds at Hawaii Raceway Park. That sparked his interest in the metal-geared and gasoline-fueled world of automotive maintenance and repair, and for most of his adult life, he worked as a mechanic until tragedy struck.
4: May 1st, 2018, my mother actually passed away after battling cancer for a number of years. Still grieving about it. One day I was walking to work at my other mechanic job and I passed by this house that said it was gonna be up for auction. Through the years, I, you know, I always looked up real estate and you know, I always dreamt of having you know, some property or investments. So I went to that auction trying to buy a condo or some kind of piece of property. At the end of that auction, I ended up coming home with a 330-acre parcel of preservation land instead. I didn't know what to do with it, just felt like a great opportunity to own that much land in Hawaii. So what I did was just, you know, besides freaking out, I just started doing research and figuring out what I could do with it. If you're not familiar with the area, there's Hawaii Lower Ridge to the front of me and Kulepia Moa to the back. The next ridge over, more popular known as Kulio'o. So yeah, so the first thing, you know, like I was not into conservation. I didn't know what to do with it. In 2019, I decided to do it on my own. Since then, we started reaching out to all these organizations, and I met all these people along the way that wanted to help out. So in 2020, we started our active restoration program, as well as our volunteer program. And since then, I just added numbers again. We're up to four and a half acres of invasive species removal and over 8,000 Native Hawaiian outplanting.
8: Right now, Monterey is Protect and Preserve Hawaii's sole employee. Among the educational and volunteer programs he offers are uhau humu pohaku, or rock wall building, and site maintenance sessions he calls Super Chill Saturdays, which is what volunteers are doing, pulling invasive guinea grass and planting the native Ala Ala vai Nui Wahine.
4: Before all this happens, I didn't know the difference from from any plant, you know, invasive versus native or ecosystems, and that's why, like, I'm super stoked to see like such like a lot of the younger generation kind of like catching on at such an early time in their lives versus like all these other people. Like, I'm almost going through like midlife crisis, basically. You know, like I'm like trying to figure out the purpose of life. You know, when this should actually be just a part of your lifestyle because. We're all land stewards if we're all using the land for our resources. So like just planting trees is not going to work. So we have to kind of like replace all these components in the ecosystem. So today we're planting a ground cover slash kind of like a shrubby vine. Alaaobainui wahine is actually in the mint family. So now we're going to do oli. It's a Hawaiian chant. We're going to do eho mai. I'll be asking for guidance today. In our Kuliana or our responsibilities. After
8: the chat concludes, the group hikes its way to the site chosen for maintenance. They split up into three smaller groups and set loose on the sprawling guinea grass with small sickles and pickaxes. That's when my opportunity to talk to Tyrone opens up. What's most interesting about the story is how it's seemingly a contradiction, right? You're working with non-natural things, you know, metal and chemical oils and things like that.
4: High source of pollution in the world, right.
8: And now you're working in nature with natural things trying to restore it.
4: How does how does that correlate? Yeah, like I mean, I'm a realist too, right? So like I can say do things with intent. Like it's like we are gonna cause some pollution, but what are you doing to counteract that? You know, like how how are you giving back? Are you you know being carbon neutral? Are you intent with everything you do every single day, right? Whether it's plastic use or being wasteful or buying local. So like, that's my whole thing, too, is that like, we're not asking for you know, to do a complete lifestyle change, but definitely to moderate and just to have intent behind your actions, no matter what it is. And that's relevant to everybody. I imagine, as a mechanic, there's a lot of little intricate
8: details that you have to learn that is part of your job. How much of the underlying skill set of being a mechanic, how much does that play into learning to be a conservationist?
4: Like, for, for me it was, I mean, i always fascinated on how things work and that's kind of why I became a mechanic too. So kind of like reverse engineering things. And same goes with nature. Figuring out how it is and what the impacts we're causing and then what's our best way to remedy it. And also with that is like finding ways to do things more efficient. I think me having that outside perspective and coming from like a place that is focused on more efficiency and production change a lot of the processes that I do personally and during our conservation work versus like state government other nonprofits. We've went from like a goal of a thousand plants a month. I mean a thousand plants a year to two thousand twenty five hundred plants a year. And all of our work is coming through volunteer community engagement. So it also shows that you don't need like a huge army of like professionals doing it and it's also like giving back to the community and letting them get more connected back to the earth too. Every place
8: in Hawaii has a story, right? At what point did you do some investigation into the cultural history or, or the, the lineal history of, of this place?
4: So the first thing I did was basically Google the out of it, you know, like what's Pi'a Valley, why it's named that, where it came from. And just from like reaching out to like the nonprofits in the area, I was able to kind of, you know, get the, kind of like the, the background and history of it. And I wanted it to be, to benefit the community. So they kind of went over like, oh, you know, well, we're lucky it went to you, but at the same time, good luck. Because one of the main reasons that this land was left for the auction was because of rockfall liability. A lot of people, even the state and like land trust was like oh we can't touch that you know so it was like I knew if it was gonna be done I had to do it myself but the lineage like I was able to sit down with the late Laura Thompson which was heavily involved with conservation in this area too as well as the voyaging society sat down she went over the whole family tree and like how they acquired the land and all that which also made me feel like you know part of the area family even though I, I didn't live here
8: in Hawaii land is such an important thing. What does land and putting work into the land mean to you?
4: I mean, it has—it goes back to a relationship with Aina, right? Like it's, it's so important, you know, living off the land and having all these resources and being able Porter's to give line, back to it. Um, not only that, but the, the cultural significance of like mm-hmm. having all this history and then people fighting wars and, right. you know, having families I, here beforehand, it, it becomes just almost like family, right? Like, you know, it's not, it's not only just giving you life, but it's, it's all the history that goes behind it, too.
8: When it comes to the history of Pia Valley, it's an interesting one. And if you've never heard of it, that's okay. It's located in an area most people know as Niu Valley.
6: That track down there in the uh-huh. 50s, they called it Niu Valley but Niu isn't a valley, it's an ahupua'a
8: That's Kawi Lucas. She lives in a house at the entrance to Pia Valley. She's a descendant of Alexander Adams. He was a trusted advisor to King Kamehameha I. It was the king who gifted the Niu lands to Adams in the early 1800s.
6: So the Ahupuaa is Niu, and I think it's like 2,500 acres. And it includes two valleys, the valleys of Pia, and Kupawa, and they are bifurcated by the Kulipia Moa Ridge that you see right here.
8: Many of Alexander Adams' descendants have recognizable last names like Lucas. Others you may know, Pfluger, as in the car dealerships, and Thompson, as in Nainoa Thompson. Cowie Lucas spent most of her childhood in Pia Valley. She says she remembers when the area was just a collection of small farms And over the years landowners haven't been particularly good stewards that's why she was a little skeptical when she heard tyrone bought the 300 plus acre parcel in pia valley but lucas says he's given her hope the valley can be restored
6: i mean he has done such an incredible job i used to i still dream every day looking this way (laughs) that all the halicoa is gone (laughs) and the, the natal palm and all the other invasives and that they're local. And what Tyrone has proved is it can be done. And I love how he just did it. He was very, very good about developing relationships in the community here first. So he did it the right way to his very great credit. It's a dream come true. I mean, I always wanted that to happen. And I'm so glad that somebody younger <laughs> and, and with all the energy showed up to do that. I mean, it's, it's remarkable.
8: Monteri says the ultimate goal for Pia Valley is to get more people in the community educated about the area and involved in conservation. He's also hoping to one day create an outdoor education center and build out a plant nursery on the property. Before I left, I had one last question for him. If your mom were alive today to see you, what do you think she would say?
4: Oh, I think she'd be super proud. You know, I think about it too. Like I wasn't into all this, you know, but she was actually towards the end of her her life here. Like she started doing a lot of more hikes and stuff. So it was like, I knew she would be like super stoked to be telling all her hiking buddies, like, oh, come out to my son's thing, you know? And my dad always, he's still alive. He always says stuff like, you know, we're super proud of you, so. I'm stoked with that. And also, like, it was kind of like, not a sign, but it's like, I feel like it was her way of, like, giving me something to connect to, you know, to help with her leaving, you know, and, like, gave me something else to have.
0: And that was Tyrone Monteri, the founder and president of Protect and Preserve Hawaii and Kawi Lucas, talking with HBR's Russell SubiONO. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. And don't forget, today's Arbor Day Hawaii. Go out and plan something. That is it for our Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we plan to go forest bathing in Ananda Arbor Day, Hawaii, happening through the weekend. Got a favorite tree story to share? Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at org. Listen back to our shows on the Conversation page on our uh, website. You can also find our segments on our website uh, or wherever you tune in for podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Subbiano, Lizzie and Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard Quiz Theme, written for us by John DeMello. Theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>